Welcome to this evening's talk on international military intervention and the politics of Iraq. Uh, I am Zeynep Kaya. I am a research fellow at the Middle East Center, and I am delighted to welcome my esteemed colleague Toby Dodge, uh, who is the Middle East Center director, great professor, and international relations uh, professor of international relations at the LSE here, and whose excellent work I'm sure you're all familiar with. Toby uh, has written extensively on Iraq, including on state-society relations in the post-2003 context, the transformative effects of sanctions on the Iraqi state, society, and economy, as well as on the new Iraqi authoritarianism. Uh, his books, he's uh, written books about, on this topic, um, which are widely read, excellent pieces of work, uh, Iraq from war to a new authoritarianism and inventing Iraq, the failure of nation building and the history denied. So without further ado, I will pass the microphone on to Toby. But before that, I would please, could you please silence your phones, um, check your phones if they are not on the silence mode. And if you would like to tweet about the event, the hashtag is hashtag LSE Iraq. Over to you, Toby. Right, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be speaking at LSE as opposed to doing what, what uh, Zainab's doing is chairing. That's what I usually do. It's also a pleasure uh, to be lecturing in the old theatre where I've given many undergraduate and postgraduate lectures. Hopefully this will be a bit shorter and possibly a bit livelier uh, than those. So um, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. And I, I suppose I'd better start out by saying what I am going to do and what I'm not going to do. For those students of LSE in the um, audience or my colleagues, I'm not going to give you a highly theoretical discussion. I could do, I suppose, but I, I think it's probably unwise about the, the link between political identity in Iraq and the collapse of the state. We could go to that in questions. Uh, I'm not centrally going to talk about um, Iraqi, um, US policy towards Iraq, though I'm going to touch on that at the end. I'm going to look tangent gently at Daesh, but I'm not going to look at Daesh's ideology. What I'm looking at is Iraq. And what I firstly wanted to do is share with you a form of trip report, some reflections on the time I spent in Iraq in November, uh, going to both Baghdad, Erbil, and Suleimaniyah. Now, what I want to do centrally, I think, in the, in the lecture is detail the fall of Mosul the country's second city to Daesh, or the Islamic State in the Iraq or Levant, take your, uh, take your name. And Mosul felt on the 10th of June 2014. And I think the case I want to make to you today is this was a huge watershed in Iraq's contemporary history. This is a, 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 a major point, I suspect, depressingly, of non-return, but it was heralded, we could see it, almost as the culmination of a series of structural problems that have haunted Iraq since regime change in 2003. So then I think we better go on and look at the escalating American air campaign against Daesh that was triggered in August 2014 and rolls on until today. Ramadi was taken at the end of last year 
and, and people are celebrating this campaign as a great success. Unsurprisingly, I would beg to differ. However, of more importance, and what I've hinted at already, and so the fourth theme of tonight's lecture, is the politics in Iraq after the fall of Mosul. Uh, since June 2014, Iraqi troops, in conjunction with much more, much larger, much expanded militias, have made painfully slow progress in taking back a number of towns to Crete, Sinjar, Ramadi, uh, back from Daesh. However, the rise of these militias and the politics that accompany them are indicative, I think, of Iraq as a profoundly weak state where sectarianly motivated militias run rampant, where um, criminality is spreading to points way beyond those uh, parts of the country dominated by Daesh, down into Basra, those oil companies operating in Basra is profoundly worried about how to protect those investments and their people, but also the people of Basra, long uh, the, 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 the neglected, uh, suppressed port city of Iraq are now getting the backlash of what we could time militarization of, uh, of the ramifications of, of empowering these militias to fight against Daesh. So d if Daesh is eventually defeated, and I think that's still clearly in there, if, but if it is defeated over the next few years, then I don't think this is necessarily a good news story. I think what I was repeatedly told when I was in Iraq in November is that the transformation of Iraq after the fall of Mosul means that the defeat of Daesh may actually see Iraq entering a new phase of its civil war. That the defeat of Daesh isn't a straightforward recipe for the, for the stabilizing of, of Iraq. It may actually unleash the very forces that have been empowered to defeat it. Now finally, I want to examine, I think, the question overhanging all of this. The, the question posed, I think, by every Iraqi, but by anyone who's spent any time looking at Iraq. Why is this state so weak? Why is Iraq still, over a decade after regime change, still dominated by violence justified in the name of religious division? Now, unsurprisingly, and this will be, I suspect, my penultimate point, all of this can be traced back to the aftermath of regime change in 2003 and the legacy of the U.S. occupation. So if I have time, if there's any time left after this, what I would conclude by suggesting, and this is the big point, I'd like you feel free to disagree in questions, but if you don't disagree, to take home with you, that Daesh itself is simply a very violent, very nasty symptom of the political problems, structural political problems that have dominated Iraq since 2003. Now the upsurge of this means that if these problems aren't solved, if we simply, like we did in 2007 with the American-led surge, get a military solution to what is actually a political problem, then however many of the thousands of Daesh fighters are killed, whenever Mosul is taken back, in a few years after that, in a very reminiscent way to how Al-Qaeda was, uh, was taken apart by the American force of arms in 2007, 8, and 9, 
in a few years after Daesh is supposedly defeated, if the politics aren't sorted out, we will simply get the son of Daesh, Daesh Mark II, a new virulent militant force, again subjecting the people to Iraq, the long-suffering people of Iraq and indeed Syria, to a new form of radical violence justified in the name of religion. So that's the point I want you to take home, and it's the point I'm going to try and justify over the next half an hour or so. So the fall of Mosul in June 2014 was the high point in Daesh's leadership's bid to rebuild the organization after the US-led surge of 2007 and in the wake of American troop withdrawal from Iraq in December 2011. A new offensive was launched in July 2012, overtly and specifically publicly designed to seize back the, uh, the territories lost to the Americans and lost to the Iraqi government after the surge was launched in 2007. From December 2012 to June 2014, the organization waged a campaign against the Iraqi army in the northwest of Iraq, using an estimated, these estimates are always very rough, 3,000 hardcore fighters to launch attacks against Tikrit and Ramadi. If you look closely enough, you'll be able to find Tikrit there and Ramadi down here. Uh, so, finally, seizing Mosul as the pinnacle of this campaign. Now, after taking Mosul, a shock in itself, the loss of Iraq's second or third city, depending after Baghdad and Mosul, depending on how you count the numbers. After taking Mosul, Daesh's forces uh, swept southwards towards Baghdad, with their advance only being halted at Samarra, a little over 100 kilometers short of the capital. Now, for those of you who haven't been to Iraq recently, I think it's difficult to overstate the trauma-inducing fact of this run on Baghdad. Yes, it was stopped. Yes, Daesh has been pushed back. But the way that Daesh sells itself, the way that it uses almost the pornography of violence to scare its opponent, this idea of this fast-moving, almost uncontrollable force heading towards Baghdad still has huge ramifications for Iraqi politics and clearly, most importantly, for ordinary Iraqis. Now, after being stopped somewhat short of Baghdad, Daesh's forces turned southwards, uh, to, uh, turned their, um, uh, when their advance was halted in August 2014, Daesh then very quickly, and of course this is indicative of their uh, modus operandi before the air campaign started, pushed into Jebel Sinjar, a region of northwest Iraq, along the Syrian border, dominated by the Yazidi minority, forcing 130,000 people to flee into Kurdish territory. Daesh then advanced towards the Kurdish regional capital, Erbil, overrunning Kurdish Peshmerga forces. I think, again, much to the shock of the Kurdish regional government's leadership and its own populations, and only being stopped on the outskirts of the city. Now, the speed with which Daesh managed to advance and capture Mosul, and then move both towards Baghdad and then east towards Erbil was very surprising. Not least to which, very surprising to the United States government. Because under the American occupation, it's aftermath. From 2004 to 2011, the United States spent $24.5 billion 
rebuilding the country's armed forces. As a result, in January 2012, as this Daesh campaign gathered momentum, the Iraqi state employed nearly a million men, a million people under arms, 933,000, spread between the Minister of Defense, the Ministry of Interior, and the Prime Minister's counterterrorism force. The majority of this force, very expensively and carefully constructed after 2004 by the US, so over seven years, collapsed in the face of Daesh's 2014 campaign. A little bit of detail here might help to envision this. The Iraqi army's first division lost two brigades fighting Daesh and Anbar in the run-up to the loss of Mosul. The second division fell apart as it fled Mosul itself in June 2014. What was left of the first division then lost two more brigades in the aftermath of the Mosul rout. The third, sixth and ninth divisions of the army fled ahead of Daesh's march on Sinjar and Erbil. Finally, the fourth division was routed during Daesh's seizure of Tikrit in 2014 with a sizable number of its rank and file reported massacred in the city. Now, when I interviewed the current Minister of Defense in Baghdad in November, he estimated that 60 to 70% of the Iraqi armed forces had collapsed after June 2014. So what we're seeing now is an attempt to rebuild that force while it's actually fighting Daesh on the front line. Incredibly difficult, complex, and precarious place thing to do. So it was Daesh's seizure of Sinjar and their move towards Erbil that triggered US intervention. And I think it's best we remember Obama was famed for the man who, uh, who won in the primaries against Hillary Clinton and then won in the, in the presidential elections against George Bush on the unambiguous promise that he would pull troops out of Iraq. So you can imagine this perfect storm of military collapse and Daesh advance was his worst nightmare. Finally, on the 8th of August 2014, President Obama authorized the use of American air power. He followed this up with, you've got to love the names they give this thing, Operation Inherent Resolve. I would gently suggest that the president is neither resolved to fight Daesh to the end or, or if that resolve is anything less than inherent. It is a multilateral coalition, undoubtedly dr funded, driven, managed by the United States. What he described in what President Obama described in 2014 as a systematic campaign of airstrikes against the terrorists with the declared strategic objective of degrading and ultimately destroying Daesh. Parallel to the air campaign, rather less publicized and more controversially, I would suggest, U.S. ground troops have been slowly increasing in Iraq. In September 2014, there were 12,000. By last week, Defense Secretary Ash Carter acknowledged that there was another 3,600 being sent this spring. In addition, Carter announced last month that there would be, quote, a specialized expeditionary targeting force of hundreds of special four operations troops to be deployed to Iraq to fight Daesh. Now, you could argue, if you were the worrying type of person, if you doubted Obama's commitment not to getting involved, that what we see is this slow escalation 
of US commitment. The launch of the US-led air campaign against Daesh in August 2014 and its steady expansion through 2015 into 2016 clearly helped break the momentum and play of Daesh's advance and played a key role in ending the siege of the Syrian cat town of Kobani. The northwest town of Tikrit was taken on the 30, 31st of March 2015 after a 29-day campaign that saw Iraqi forces heavily supported by American airstrikes and coalition intelligence. Now, if we look at the retaking of Tikrit on the 31st of March, what's interesting and what I would argue is very worrying is the fluid nature of the forces that retook that city. 27,000 troops that made up government forces, of which 70% used in the operation were undertaken by Shia militias. Militias like Asib al-Haq, the Badr Brigade, and Khatib Hezbollah, along with the Sadrist Peace Brigades. So they played a key role in taking the city and then occupied it for four months in the aftermath and actively blocked the return of Sunni refugees. In addition, a man whose name may or may not be familiar to you, Qasem Soleimani and Hadi al-Amri played a central role in planning and executing the military campaign around Tikrit. If, for those of you who don't know, Qasem Soleimani, almost like the Kaiser Sose of Iranian foreign policy, is the head of the Quds Brigade of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. The Quds Brigade is the organization charged by the Iranian government to run its covert overseas operations. What's intriguing about Qasem Soleimani, he was a great, a great man of mystery. Hardly anyone had seen him. He's reported to be here, there, everywhere. And at the height of this military campaign, I was trying to find out whether he was really in Iraq. And then I flicked on my Facebook, something I do with all too much frequency when I've reached an impasse. And there should I find a picture of the great man in the uh, office of a Baghdad MP who was so proud of hanging out with the head of the Quds Brigade that he put it on his own Facebook page. And since then, you could argue very intriguingly that Soleimani has become almost the poster boy of Iranian overseas operations. Uh, Hadi al-Amri is a senior commander in the Islamist uh, Iraqi Shia militia of the Badr Brigade that was a violent, undoubtedly violent sectarian actor in Iraq's civil war that raged from 2004 to 2008. So what I'm arguing here is some, not all, and we'll get to where that hasn't happened in a minute, some of these military victories have been driven forward by sectarian militias with rather predictable consequences. Now against this background, Daesh's ability to quickly regroup and in the face of territorial loss and redeploy its forces was indicated when after losing to Crete, they seized control of Anbar's provincial capital, Ramadi, in May 2015. Ramadi has only just been seized back at the end of December. Now, the largely uh, Yazidi town of Sinjar was retaken by Kurdish Peshmerga forces on the 13th of November 2014. However, keep in mind that 80% of the town was destroyed during this liberation. Six different military forces comprising 7,500 men were used to retake uh, the city, fighting against an estimated one and a half, two thousand Dash fighters. 
forces from the two main Kurdish parties, the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan and the Kurdistan Democratic Party, along with the Syrian Kurdish militia, the PYD, were used. The animosity between these different fighting groups was such that they advanced on the city, they advanced on Sinjar, the city they were collectively liberating from different directions to avoid skirmishing with each other before they got to the actual enemy, Daesh. However, undoubtedly, with the support of heavy US air power, the Kurdish forces did retake the city, which brings us to the last city recently retaken, Ramadi, that was taken on the 28th of December, seven months after it fell to Daesh. Now, this was intriguingly, and I think this could be flagged up as a possible uh, note of optimism. This was retaken by 10,000 troops from the Iraqi army, primarily from the elite counter-terrorism service, the so-called Golden Brigade, uh, acting in uh, cooperation with the, Eighth Ar the Army's 8th Division. So this is formal Iraqi forces with heavy US support fighting to retake the city uh, at the end of a seven-month campaign. However, again, like Sinjar, the city itself was almost totally destroyed in attempts to retake it. And rebuilding it would take billions of dollars that Iraq, with this low oil price, clearly doesn't have. Now, any attempt uh, to present the retaking of Ramadi as a decisive victory on the way to Daesh's total defeat faces a number of problems. Firstly, as I said, it took the Iraqi army seven months to retake a city it already possessed in May and had lost. This means any sustainable attempt to take Mosul will be a year away, if not, I suspect, several years. Secondly, the destruction of the town and the mass population displacement involved in this victory raises profound questions about what uh, the army would call her hearts and minds. As population are scattered out of the towns, as they become internally displaced people, as the Iraqi government hasn't got the money to rebuild their homes, what happens to them? What happens to the people who've been liberated from Daesh? I would argue the chances are, at the moment at least, they face another trauma, another period of insecurity, and they may, just may, become another source of instability. So, the central point about the rise of Daesh is that it's a violent symptom of a set of much larger problems that have undermined the Iraqi state since it was reconstructed in the aftermath of regime change in March 2003. Although these problems, largely political, have their roots in the system that was built after the invasion, they have, if anything, accelerated because of the fall of Mosul. Now, again, if we're looking for positives, and it's a huge positive, one certain positive outcome of the fall of Mosul was that Nouri al-Maliki, Iraq's prime minister since 2006, was prevented from getting a third term as prime minister after the 2014 elections. He was, he got the most popular votes of any individual prime minister, uh, of any individual politician in those elections, but he was clearly blamed for the rising sectarian tensions and the weakness of the army that led to the fall of Mosul. Instead, he was re replaced by a former resident of London, Haider Abadi, Dr. Haider Abadi, has a um, PhD in electrical engineering, the so-called accidental prime minister, who, who comes from Maliki's own party, but was appointed 
to some extent because he wasn't Maliki. Now, Abadi is certainly a positive move forward for Iraqi politics. He has deliberately and publicly attempted to drop the authoritarian and overtly sectarian policies associated with Maliki's term as Prime Minister. He's also tried to launch an ambitious, possibly overambitious, anti-corruption campaign and to tame the worst excesses of the, Iraqs, the Iraqi system's sectarianism and indeed set, it, set about purging the army of its, uh, of its most corrupt senior ranks who've been placed there because of their political links. Finally, Abadi, I think in his most potentially positive rule, has attempted to decentralize the Iraqi state, uh, pushing power down to the provinces. And his main, uh, his main vehicle for this was the formation of provincial national guards, locally raised provincial military forces. Why is this so important? Well, in theory, it's so important because it allows provincial governors to recruit local people to put police their provinces. Now, one of the outcomes, one of the sad outcomes of the Iraqi Civil War 2004 to 2008 is that m the majority of these provinces are now uh, mono-religious or mono-ethnic, uh, Kurds in, in provinces, Shias and Sunnis in provinces. What does this mean? Now, if you look at the election, provincial election results, it means with each election there's been a huge turnover of provincial governments. Because, to use an American phrase, you can vote the bums out because there's not a religious ideology to stop you. They haven't delivered electricity or clean running water, say for example in Basra, vote them out, see if someone can do a better job. Now, that means that in giving the ability of the governorates to raise local forces, you're actually raising forces that aren't necessarily tainted by the sectarian politics that has dominated Baghdad. However, although starting off with a wave of optimism, although uh, Hyderabad's opinion polls are still bearing up across Iraq, across the sectarian divide, though they've taken a, a drop, these reform initiatives, anti-corruption, anti-sectarianism, uh, trying to build a National Guard, have been consistently gutted, uh, limited, or voted down in Parliament. Because clearly, they challenge the vested interests that have been empowered in the Baghdad Parliament since 2003, and we'll get back to that. But I think more so than attempts to stop Hyderabad's campaign of reform, it's the Hashdashabi the popular mobilization forces that really put a grave shadow over the sustainability of Iraq if and when Daesh is defeated. Now with the collapse of the Iraqi armed forces in June 2014 and the dramatic advance of Daesh towards Baghdad afterwards, drastic measures were taken to defend the city. Keeping in mind what I said about the undoubted and very real trauma this advance was causing. In, on the 13th of June 2014, recognizing the perilous nature of the situation, Iraq's most senior religious authority, Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, issued a fatwa, or religiously binding edict, calling on all able-bodied men to defend their country and their people and their holy places. Two days later, 
the Iraqi government announced the formation of what it called the Popular Mobilization Forces, in Arabic, the Hashtashabi, to act as an organization for managing the tens of thousands of young men who, following Sistani's fatwa, flocked to volunteer to join defense forces to defend Baghdad. Now, there's no doubt, on reading that fatwa, Sistani explicitly asked the volunteers to join Iraqi government forces, and the government itself, already a perilously weak government, moved quickly to set up the Hashtashabi, the main beneficiary of this popular mobilization. However, in addition to that, and actually outflanking that and, and gaining an awful lot, were the Shia militias run and organized by the Shia Islamist parties. Militias like Hasib al-Haq, um, the Badr organization, or Khatib Hezbollah. They took center stage, arming and deploying these new recruits, moving them rapidly towards the front, and indeed, initially, at least taking the credit for defending Baghdad and pushing Daesh backwards. Again, the senior Badr commander, Hadi al-Amri, became the public face of these forces, traveling around the front lines, appearing on telly night after night, dancing with troops, and celebrating victory after victory. Today, these militias, not controlled by government, primarily and motivated by sectarian ideology, are estimated to have between 60 and 100,000 men under arms. The Hasht also, because of their initial victories against Daesh, have more social societal prestige and better and more reliable pay than the Iraqi army. There's strong evidence to suggest that what rank-and-file troops remain in the Iraqi army are vulnerable to defecting to the Hush because they've got a better chance of getting paid and, uh, and they get more kudos for, for being in risk with the Hush than they would the Iraqi army. Now, the problems of raising a primarily Shia force mobilized through sectarian messaging and controlled by Shia militias have become all too apparent. As the militias and the Hashtashabi began to retake territory in Sunni-majority areas from Daesh, there have been repeated and sustained reports from Human Rights Watch, amongst others, of summary executions, human rights abuses, and deliberate attempts at religiously motivated depopulation. The result has been to raise profound doubts about the sustainability of these victories, and as, they've been, and, and, and as they've been based on population transfers that have further increased resentment and alienation amongst the Sunni section of Iraq's population, they may actually make it easier for Daesh or son of Daesh to, to rejuvenate itself, to, to feed off the resentment of the community that originally gave them their momentum. Beyond this, the dominant role of Shia militias now occupying roadblocks across Baghdad is an undoubted driver of renewed sectarian tensions and has led to an increase in sectarian murders in Baghdad not seen since the end of the civil war in 2008. It is difficult to overstress the importance of the Hashd's emergence. Against the background of the collapse of the Iraqi army and the threat posed by Daesh, the Hasht have become the most ideologically and organizationally coherent force in Iraqi politics today. 
Senior Iraqi politicians of all parties and of all faiths and indeed US military commanders talk about the war after the war. The conflict between the Hashd and the remnants of the Iraqi army for control of the territory of the Iraqi government after Daesh is gone. The fight could between that be the heart between the fight could be between the Hashdashabi and the Prime Minister's counterterrorism force, and you see the tension in, the, in uh, messaging and public statements from Shia militias as they were kept out from the retaking of Ramadi. In, the, in addition, senior Kurdish politicians and military leaders describe the Hasht as a parallel military force which will be used to expand radical Shia Islamism at the expense of other political forces and communities and the Kurdish Beshmerga fear at the expense of the territory they took after the collapse of Mosul. The Shia militias, see them, the Shia militias themselves see themselves or compare themselves to Lebanon's Hezbollah as a model for a political social movement that rallies Shia public opinion to its cause through bravery but also through ideological polarization and social work in large swathes of Iraq where the state does not have a presence. There is little doubt that this force of radical Shia Islamism is drowning out moderate Shia public opinion. It dominates news broadcast. It clearly has accrued uh, legitimacy in the fight against Daesh, and it's playing on a sense of unease, if not unpopularity, of the resident, what would be called the green zone elite that's dominated Iraqi politics since 2003. It is also clear that this force is overtly aligned with Iran's Revolutionary Guard, with Revolutionary Guard generals taking uh, uh, an overt role, Qasem Soleimani is the example of that, in the fight against Daesh, but also in rallying and deploying these informal forces. Um, an example of where this may go, I'm worried about time, but I'll touch on it briefly, is the northern town of Tuskamatu. This is an example of what could happen after Daesh has been driven out. Now, Tuskamatu is, is in a mixed area in eastern Salahadeen province. I found it on the map earlier. Um, I'm going to see if it's here. There you go. So it's up here. In the urban areas, Kurds and Turkmen are the majorities, while in the rural regions, Sunnis and Turkmen predominate. Uh, there's, long, there's been long-standing tensions between the Kurds and the Turkmens who accuse the Kurdish regional government of hoarding power in their attempt to annex parts of the district which the Kurdish regional government sees as part of the disputed territory. In June 2014, Daesh swept into this already t tense area as the Iraqi security forces collapsed. Many Sunni residents fled in the wake of the fighting or were forced out by the militias who considered them supporters of the insurgency. Now that many villages surrounding the, the town of Tuskamata are either abandoned or emptied, a new conflict has emerged between the Kurdish Peshmerga forces and the Shia militias associated with the Hashdashabi who claim responsibility for retaking the town. Starting in September 2014, there's been increasing confrontations and gunfire between the Peshmerga and specifically the Badr Brigade. In November 2015, Shia militiamen refused to stop at a Kurdish checkpoint, which led to a firefight and a standoff. 
Now the point here, this area is being contested outside the control of, Iraq, of the Iraqi government. This is straightforwardly force of arms with both sides contesting an area. Now the argument is this area may not in and of itself be of any strategic importance, but just above it are the oil fields in the very significant town of Kirkuk that the Kurdish regional forces took in June 2014 and want to hold. So if you were looking for a trigger line, a conflict zone that could indicate where Iraqi politics are going, i.e. back into civil war, Al-Qaeda is defeated, Kumatu would be a good place to look. Now, that's, as far as I can see, where Iraqi politics stands today. Now, given that we've just examined Iraqi politics across the last, say, year and a half, let's draw the analytical lens out a bit and ask the question, how on earth did this happen? How did Iraq get into such a dreadful state? Both the sorry state of Iraqi politics today and the rise of Daesh can, I think, be explained, in large part at least, as a legacy that the US left in place in the aftermath of the invasion. Now, I'm not in any way saying the, Iraq, the United States planned this. Um, they clearly didn't anticipate it. But this is an unintended consequences of the policies that were pursued in the aftermath of the collapse of the Iraqi state. Now, there are two reasons for this. And the first is the Mahasasa system, or the apportionment system. So from the formation of the Iraqi Government Council by the United States in 2003, through elections in 2005 and 2010 and 2014, post-election governments, these so-called governments of national unity, have been formed along the lines of sectarian quotas. The Prime Minister and the President, but also the Cabinet posts, are apportioned uh, in a depending on how many votes the individual parties got, but which community, Shia, Sunni, or Kurd, they represent, or supposedly represent, in, Iraq, in the Iraqi system. Now think about that. The Mahasa system mobilizes and delivers voters to the ballot box in terms of their sectarian identity, deliberately undermining a unitary Iraqi nationalist identity. It then apportions ministries but mo much more importantly, the resources and the payrolls they hold, they hold to those sectarian parties, who could then, if not through personal corruption, then through political corruption, uh, dish out those, th those resources to their followers. Now this, I think, has two aspects to it. Firstly, it undermines the link between ordinary Iraqi citizens and the state. Instead, re rebuilding that link, saying it's your, your religious or ethnic identity that ties you to the state. Secondly, it has unleashed a fury of corruption. Transparency International, free, uh, uh, since 2003, rates Iraq as one of the most corrupt states in the world. So partly, the Iraqi state is so profoundly weak, ideologically, because Iraq, the Iraqi nation has been fragmented, but also because corruption has been left almost unchecked to run rampant through its institutions. But 
Thirdly, and possibly even more importantly, there is something placed at the heart of this Mahasasa system called an, an elite bargain. Now, let me check Dr. Stefan Lindemann, who's no longer working at LSE, but when he did work at LSE for something called the Crisis Research uh, Center, he wrote a really good paper that has clearly influenced my own understanding of Iraq, though he's actually on African politics, about exclusive elite bargains. So those of you who study conflict, uh, study, uh, conflict resolution know what an elite bargain it is. It's trying to bring communal elites uh, who represent sections of society into government, tie them together in a bargain, give them some stake in the status quo and peace, and then run the, re the resources of the state through that bargain. However, Lindemann identified something called an ex exclusive elite bargain, which only brings a certain number of those elites into government and excludes others, thus creating resentment. The argument here is that the post-2003 political settlement was an exclusive elite bargain. From debarthification onwards, it deliberately gave a minimal or marginal role to political parties seeking to represent the Sunni section of society. So under this elite bargain, the Iraqi Islamic Party, uh, then Tawafak, the Iraqi Accord, and then Ayat Alawi's Iraqiya bloc, were meant to deliver the Sunni section of the electorate into the cabinet, but in a minor role. And therefore, the Iraqi population saw themselves excluded from politics, persecuted by the Iraqi state in the name of debarthification or anti-Islamist radicalism, and therefore a small section of them became prime recruits for Daesh's campaign. Now, in the last couple of minutes that I've got, let me bring out the lens even further to look at two issues. The first big issue, which hopefully I've made clear, you can disagree with, but this is the central thesis of the talk, that however successful the United States air campaign in Syria, but specifically in Iraq, is in killing Daesh militants, and however successful this rather ragbag force of what's left of the Iraqi army and the militias are moving up towards Mosul, unless, if and until, this political problem, the marginalization, the Mahasa system, the corruption dominant at the heart of the system built, reconstructed by the Americans after 2003, if that isn't sorted, then this system will again and again give rise to alienation, give rise to powerful, violent forces that, uh, that, that recruit people who have nothing left at stake in Iraq. And my final thought, given that peace talks, United Nations overseeing peace talks, are moving forward in Syria, this was the mother of all international interventions, 2003 and its aftermath, clearly driven by the United States. But what the United States couldn't do, with all the billions of dollars it invested, not only is build a sustainable army, but build a sustainable police, political settlement. There are profound lessons for the peace negotiations going on uh, over Syria at the moment, but also what we can hope for and what we can't hope for, for any extended international intervention beyond Iraq. Thank you very much.
Toby for an excellent and thought-provoking speech. Um, the picture isn't very optimistic. Not, it's a, we have a very bleak picture. Um, but um, hopefully other, during the comments there some positive things will come up uh, and some roadmaps to how things can be uh, improved. So I'm going to open uh, the questions. Uh, please keep your questions uh, as brief as possible. Uh, and I just want to remind you again the hashtag for tweeting, hashtag LSE Iraq. Um, before you ask the questions, please introduce yourselves. And there's a microphone, uh, Romy, so please wait for the microphone uh, before asking your question so that the question is recorded effectively. Okay. Thank you, uh, Ali Bahaji of North South Publications. Uh, one of the most profound impact that uh, dismantled the state of Iraq, in fact, was the uh, dismantling the security forces and the army. And once you do that, you uh, have chaos, which is what happened following the, uh, uh, the invasion of Iraq. Uh, you have been to Iraq recently, and one of the uh, nucleus force of Daesh is apparently the uh, previous Iraqi soldiers and uh, officers and they're the ones who actually lead uh, the pack, as you were. And uh, because when they were disbanded, they took their armaments with them, and that's what they are using at the moment. Have you had any confirmations of that? Thank you. Okay, thanks, that's, that's a great question. And the answer is yes and no. So let me, let me run at it in different ways. Clearly, I think, Current estimates are difficult to know because so many of the senior leadership are getting killed so often. But current estimates say the mid to senior uh, ranking leadership of Daesh are about 75% Iraqi, and a great majority of those are from the mid ranks of Saddam's old army, its intelligence services, whatever. So you're exactly right on that point. The reason I'm a little bit uneasy is that some, not all of there's a, uh, I think there's an excellent piece in Frankfurt Allgemeinen, but other, other reports on this simply suggest somehow that Daesh, and I know you're not suggesting that, but Daesh is, is, is Ba'athism rebooted, or some kind of Saddamist stalking horse. And that, it suits some uh, platforms to that. That, as you know, is, is clearly rubbish. What happened, the collapse of the Iraqi army uh, in 2003, in face of the advancing American arms, was almost complete, as was the collapse of the Iraqi state with the looting afterwards. And then those forces, those collapsed, beaten forces, scattered back to their homes and houses and waited there. In 2003, I know this is a fact, because in 2003, in May 2003, I carried out a series of interviews with senior Iraqi figures in a suburb of, of Baghdad, then called Ghazalia. Um, and they were waiting. They were defeated. They didn't know what was going to happen. Now, the point, you're quite right, of disbanding the army and debathification was to give them no stake in the future. 
And then they rallied and mobilized in a fractured, disorganized way, 2003, 2005, the original insurgency. And that mobilization, as we've seen in Syria, I suspect, became increasingly Islamified, became radical, but got its, its coherence through sectarian ideology. And that leads us into the creation of al-Qaeda in Iraq and then the creation of, of Daesh's forerunner in 2006. So clearly, when, when, they, when those that joined Daesh joined Daesh, they didn't bring their weapons with them. They brought themselves something much more valuable, the skill set they'd been given in the, the authoritarian and, 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 and repressive organization that Saddam had built. So in that sense, you're right, but I, I, I'm just a bit uneasy in overstating that case. Hi, uh, my name is Janan. I'm from University of Bath. I'm very pleased to see you because I quoted you many times, one of my Thank you. important. Uh, um, um, I have two questions. What I understood from you is that you think um, even if the phase of Daesh finished, there will be or would be um, conflict between Hashti Shabi and the Iraqi army. And I wonder why, because I believe the Hashti Shabi are formed by political parties who are already in power. They are represented in parliament and in government. So why should be a conflict later on? My first question. My second question is, you mentioned Muhasasa as a big issue. Who you think the forces that could participate in ending Muhasasa? And do you think the demonstrations now in Iraq taking place since July ha could have any impact in pushing against Muhasasa? Thank you very much. About four questions there, I think. <laughs> so let's take one more question and brief question, brief answer so that we can fit as many questions as possible. Uh, I see a gentleman there. Just by you, Sandra. Yeah. Uh, hi, my name's David Harrington, I'm a member of the public. Uh, I, do you think Arab states can only be ruled by dictators? Okay. Yeah, okay, some excellent questions. And th the first one I think it is, is um, right on the nail. So. Broadly, people like Hadi Al-Amri are in hugely important uh, positions, Case Ghazali less so. These are the leaders of the, of, of the main uh, Shia militias. Why would they, what, what, what would they fight over? They're running Iraq anyway. I don't think that's true. If you look at Hadi Al-Amri's letter to the Prime Minister, not so long ago, it was, uh, it was scolding him, it was telling him off, and underneath there was an implicit threat. If you don't do what we want you to do, then we'll come and get you. Now that, I think, shows Hadi Al-Amri's political ambition, very much the man about town in Baghdad, uh, styling himself as a, a man who's moved beyond his origins in, in militias. Um, but it also shows that there still is a tension. And the big arguments about who is going to retake uh, Ramadi, and that the overt anger by the Hasht and the militias behind it, saying, no, no, we want to do that. And then the, 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 the Prime Minister and a section of the political elite maneuvering in the counter-terrorism force, I think, shows there still is a tension there. Now, it depends where all this goes. If Ramadi is a move forwards and shows a growing coherence of the Iraqi state, 
it shows also a growing coherence of a, a more moderate approach to Iraqi politics compared to people like Case Ghazali, then uh, you, you can see the trend moving in a different way. And you can be, imagine at the, at the height of the Iraqi Civil War, 2006, as you re remember there was a, an intra-Shia civil war between the, the Sadrists and the Badr Brigade that reached a crescendo, if I seem to remember, in, in Kabul or Najaf, and then Sadr stepped back because we can speculate why, because, because I suspect he realized he didn't have the majority of what would now call Shia public opinion on his side. So there is a battle, I think, I would argue strongly, going on within the Shia section of the Iraqi population and between the government and the Hashtashabi. And to be frank, and this gets on to your next question, the government haven't got much to fight with in terms of hearts and mind. That, that, that from 2003, the government has singularly failed to deliver to the Iraqi population. And this is indeed what these demonstrations are about since July, and what these de triggers these demonstrations every summer since 2003, almost, when the Iraqi population, long-suffering, have to put up with intermittent or non-existent electricity, have to put up with poor running water in incredible heat, and they turn around and they say, what on earth is this government doing? And they used to say, what on earth is this government doing sitting on so much oil wealth? That oil wealth is now gone because of the price of oil. Now, does that mobilization lead to a new political force? And I think you and I have certainly looked and looked and wanted and waited, well, I've wanted normatively and waited to see, and that political force hasn't come. And the question is why? And I suspect in the aftermath or in the shadow of a civil war that's been heavily justified in terms of sectarian ideology, I, it is very difficult, though not impossible, to mobilize across that sectarian divide, a sectarian divide that's been institutionalized and exacerbated, but also been traumatized by the rise of Daesh and its move towards Baghdad. So those trying to build cross, or trying to build national politics politics are, are struggling against, at the moment, both structural and societal forces. I don't say it won't happen, and I think every time, every summer in the aftermath, as people mobilize in Baghdad, you see the possibilities. But as we saw with the rise of Daesh, or indeed how Nouri al-Maliki would manipulate those by giving a little, then by playing to sectarian ideology to solidify his vote banks to make sure that they weren't drawn off to this new movement. So I'm sadly, I think, no. And no is the answer to you. I don't think Iraqi states need to be run by dictators. I think we, 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 there's a lot of very negative and pessimistic reporting about the Arab Spring, but what we saw in the Arab Spring was largely young people laying their lives on the line for what? What were they demanding? Citizenship and democracy, transparency, uh, uh, rule-governed and, and democracies. And I think that shows those huge popular movements that there was, there is, remains, and will continue to be demands for what all of us would demand in that situation, representation, rule of law, transparency. But building towards a democracy, as, as the, what would we call them, democratic imperialists like Paul Wolfowitz found out in Iraq after 2003, is very, very difficult, especially if you're pushing that democracy by force of arms and the Marine Corps. So I think this is a largely indigenous process, as we saw with the Arab Spring. It's for courageous Arabs with our backing, with our huge support to mobilize uh, against the authoritarian government. And I think slowly uh, they will succeed as, as 
the, the upsurge in Arab Spring indicates that they want to and there's a popular backing for so. Thank you. Okay, any more questions? The gentleman with the white shirt. And let's take one question from upstairs. Uh, yeah, the gentleman with glasses. Hi, uh, Mushtaba Masood, documentary maker. Uh, just a question in regards to the Shia uh, paramilitary forces or, or militias. Um, who actually controls them? Because we mentioned a lot about Iran controlling them, but there's no mention of Ayatollah Sistani, who, who actually made the, the call to, to, fight, um, to fight in Mosul. And also, in terms of Athir Najafi, the governor of Mosul, uh, at the start when ISIS took Mosul, he mentioned that only, only a Sunni force can take, can take Mosul. And, and, um, a, a Shia force would, would cause, would infuel sectarianism, and I wonder what you think about that. Thank you. Okay, let's take the other question. Hi, um, James, just a member of the public. Um, obviously, after the fall of Saddam, uh, America and the West pivotal in sort of rebuilding what, what, what is the government, you described the, the flaws of the current system. As they look, you know, following the defeat of IS, Daesh, whatever that new system needs to be built, is there a role for U.S., Britain, West to play in rebuilding that, or is this something that must be done uh, by Iraqis themselves? And does, is, does anyone have that vision of what that looks like uh, in a functioning way? Thank you. Right, great, thank you. Um, who controls the hash is, 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 is a great question, and I think the answer is the hash itself or the militia forces that make up or try and drive the hash are, are a a multiple set of forces. So I listed three or four militias in the talk, um, and I, I think that's clearly the case, with the government desperately attempting not only to retain some control but increase it. And indeed, the letter we mentioned from Hadi al-Amri to the Prime Minister was saying, give us money. Give us money for these fighting forces. Not, please, can you give us some money, sir? Give us money now. Uh, we demand it. So there is clearly a struggle, but it's also a struggle amongst fractured forces. I think Sistani is, is a fascinating character in this instance, that clearly and understandably he called for that mobilization, but he's a very astute man, and he called for it, I think, in a, in a, in a, in a careful way for people to volunteer for state forces, but state forces simply didn't have the capacity, even though they tried to suck up that amount of people coming that quickly, and it was almost inevitable, unforeseen but inevitable, that the militias would benefit from that. So I think that, that's undoubted. Now that you talk about um, the role of the Iranians, now it's not as simple, uh, the Iranians wouldn't have, the Kuzbegade, the, the, the Revolutionary Guard, wouldn't have the capacity simply to control them, but I think what they have done through weapons, through advice, through money, through... Um, people they have long-standing relationships with, like Case Ghazali, they've, they've, they've allied themselves with figures of organizational and ideological influence. I, uh, I wouldn't put it any stronger than that. Uh, Athil uh, Najafi, and indeed his brother, I, I don't think he is wrong uh, in striking a very powerful warning that how Mosul is to be retaken, and especially the aftermath of that, is crucial for how Ara Iraqi politics unfolds. You could argue that Mosul is one of the most religiously homogeneous uh, 
cities in, in Iraq with a, a majority Sunni population. It's felt neglected and, and uh, it's repressed by the Iraqi state. Uh, it now feels neglected, uh, it now feels repressed and traumatized by Daesh. If the Iraqi state go in there heavy-handedly and, and they use the tactics they use to retake Tikrit or Ramadi, which is heavy aerial bombardment and long-range artillery, there's not going to be much left of Mosul uh, in the aftermath of that. And that population displacement, if anything, is going to fuel those, um, those, uh, those feelings. Now, how do we get over that? How do we or how do they? Uh, and I think the argument is what's unfolding now, it looks like is, the, uh, as Najafi you know, was suggesting, is that the mobilization of local forces, trained though not informal forces, local forces under the control of the governor, um, the, 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 the rebuilding of a coherent, uh, disciplined, uh, controlled by a chain of command army force. But running parallel to that is the recreation in Baghdad of a stake for Masalis or anyone from that area of Iraq back in the Iraqi government. So when the Iraqi government comes knocking next time, it doesn't seem to be an army of occupation or an army that's, that's either incompetent or not delivering resources. So it, it's a balanced and long-term project to do this at all, let alone to do it in a sustainable way that would contribute to stability. But it's not going to happen anytime soon anyway, so the time is there. Now, the question down here is, a, is, a, is, a, is an excellent one and uh, implicit in my talk but not answered. What role for the international community, the US, the EU, the United Nations, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, all of these? Now, the crucial question is here is that Iraq has no resources. That with the collapse of the oil price, the collapse of the army, uh, the rampant corruption, Iraq needs international help financially. Also because of the brain drain, the civil war, it needs international expertise. All of that is undoubtedly uh, the case. The, the UN, the role of the UN in bringing, finally bringing displaced people back to, uh, to Tikrit was, was remarkable and was seen as a success in the ongoing campaign, once the militia had been forced to, to leave, the UN uh, allied to provincial governments did come back in. So there clearly is a role for the international community, undoubtedly in finance, in expertise, in advice. But for better or worse, Iraq has an elected government and a ruling elite. And so we can't simply sweep them aside. That was a mistake made in 2003. Uh, they have to be worked with. Um, and given free uh, but frank advice about where they've gone wrong in the past and where one would suggest they do better in the future. Okay, thank you, Toby. More questions? I saw a gentleman in the front. Was it you? Before, yeah. Uh, and um, was there anyone that raised their hand before in the previous round? No? Okay. Yeah, you. Um, hi, Ollie Dixon, uh, member of the public. Um, I was wondering if you could touch upon where you see the influence of Saudi Arabia 
and the rest, or broadly the Gulf states, on the sectarian and structural politics of Iraq. And I suppose more importantly, how do you think that might change in a situation where Daesh is defeated? Yeah, I was just wondering if you think there's a peaceful and sustainable solution within the existing borders of the states of Syria and Iraq. Thank you. And let's take one more question. Um, that lady upstairs. This is a long way. Next time. Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, thank you. Um, so you've discussed a lot of what would happen if Daesh were to be defeated, but I would like to draw us back a little um, and to talk about the deteriorating state of the Iraqi government. So the Iraqi government, have you can you ask the question? As you've just alluded to, doesn't have very much money. So there are local predictions that by August there will be no uh, money in the treasury to be able to even pay public, um, you know, sector employers their wages. So how does that affect um, the future of Iraq? And also, could you discuss reconciliation? There are Sunni actors that are in the shadows um, who are having discussions with Americans, with various other actors. Um, what could happen if reconciliation were to take place? And would people like Dawa um, be involved in that? And what would be the ramifications of that? Okay, thank you. Right, on the question of the Gulf states, um, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, there's two ways to answer that. I think clearly within the region and focused on the Gulf, there's been an upsurge in sectarian messaging, uh, a rise in, in, in very aggressive delineation between Sunni and Shia and a demonization of one, largely with media coming out of Doha to a lesser extent Riyadh. That's undoubtedly the case. Where does that translate into Iraq? Well, I think it's translated much more aggressively into Syria, where Gulf states have overtly and unapologetically funded groups on the ground, mobilized, um, and, and fighting under banners that are radically Islamist and sectarian. There's no doubt about that. In Iraq, the evidence is less. And if you were looking for forces that were external forces along with Iran that were directly intervening, I think Turkey would be much higher up the list than Saudi Arabia or even Qatar. And I, I have a little list of how many times different ambassadors are called in to the foreign minister and carpeted and told off for activities unbecoming of an amb their ambassadorial status. And the Turks, it happens much more. To, I think the Saudis have happened just once this week, I think. And they've, they've only opened their embassy recently, so uh, it's, a, it's, a quick, it's a slow start. But um, in that sense, so I, I think it, it, it's not as profound in Iraq and hasn't been as dangerous, I don't think, in, uh, in, um, uh, in Iraq compared to Syria. Um, sustainable within the current borders, this is, I suppose, alluding to uh, the Sykes-Picot argument that somehow lurking within Iraq or Syria, there are s s smaller, simpler, more purer political organizations, and then, uh, you didn't say that, but let me go on, other people do, based on religious and ethnic identity. I think that is not the case. Analytically, I think political identities are fluid. Uh, I don't see, uh, as I was saying, the provincial government 
in um, uh, Basra being any more efficient because it's dominated by, by sheer actors. I do see them <coughs> being voted out more, uh, but I, that's not making them more effective yet. What I, what I, I, I don't see the direct, I have yet to be convinced of the direct connection between mono religious communities, good governance, democracy, and stability. If that could be explained to me, we could have a debate about it, but I, I've yet to see that. I've yet to see it explained, actually, let alone uh, justify. Um, the Iraqi state and no money, you know, that, it is in a, a perilous state. Each budget that the Iraqi government has, uh, has put out there has been pegged on a too optimistic level of uh, price per barrel of oil. We can't blame that. The, the, the price of oil is very difficult to predict. Where are they going to get their money from? My understanding, straightforwardly, is and they're, they're in extended negotiations with other states and international financial institutions for rather large loan guarantees in the, in the, um, in the region of billions of dollars. So they have appealed to their international allies to get money, and as far as I understand it, those allies are stepping forward how long that will take and whether that will actually rectify anything uh, more than paying the civil servants, which is, is no bad thing to do in the short term. Uh, we go to the Kurdish regional government, another example of a mini-state in profound financial crisis because it has a huge overinflated payroll uh, as, a, as a deliberate tool of political quiescence of buying support, which it can't sustain. Uh, the straightforward way or the international financial institutions prognosis would be to cut back that, that's cut back the payroll, that at the moment is politically unsustainable, so they're in a conundrum, hence, to some extent, beyond the problems of Daesh, why Baghdad is so keen to loan money from its allies, and hence it will barter very heavily for the strings attached to that to be minimal. Uh, I, we'll have to see how that unfolds. Okay. Uh, reconciliation, sorry. I don't use the term. Uh, in Iraq, it was banded about from 2003 all the way through 2007. Uh, and I don't think it's particularly helpful. It was described by someone working for many years on it as almost like a kumbaya moment, that somehow there's a magic formula that people will start to love each other again or at least bury their hatreds. What I think is another way of looking at something with possibly similar outcomes, which I've hinted at before, would be, as you were saying, uh, sunny interlocutors uh, in, in the shadows on the fringes is to actually engage in a, a process of political anthropology to go out there to the three million people uh, ha uh, the majority of which are Sunnis who are internally displaced and half of which a million and a half are pushed into the Kurdish regional government to go to the provincial governments to the local towns and say who are your political leaders to, 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 to encourage them to mobilize round a deliverable manifesto, link them to provincial government and deliver them back into Baghdad where they will say to people like Dawa who have unsuccessfully dominated a kleptocratic and repressive government since 2003, these are our democratic demands and we want them to be taken seriously. Now how will Dawa respond to that is anyone's guess but until a mobilized legitimate force that has bona fide credentials of represent, representing, for example, the Sunni section of society, go to Baghdad, Dawa don't have to respond. They can carry on demonizing sections of Sunni society as either Ba'athists 
or Islamic radicals. When that process happens as it did in the 2010 elections, it puts that green zone elite under huge pressure and it takes us back in a different way to the mobilization that's got ongoing from the summer protests that those populations are saying, how dare you? You know, how dare you squander our money when all these years after mobilization, after regime change, we haven't got enough electricity or running water? What have you done with the money? Why is this government so, so corrupt? It's asking a different set of questions, but it's mobilizing populations politically and delivering them into the democratic process. That's the only way that I think that the Iraqi populations stand a chance of making the state work in a way that will decrease sectarian tensions, that will control corruption, and that might just once in all these years since 2003 give the Iraqi population a voice in government. Okay, thank you. So please can you ask your question? Hi, uh, Bianca Beam, I'm a former student. You touched on this briefly, but I just wanted um, you to elaborate a bit. Um, if you could speak about the impact of the fall of oil prices on Kurdish revenue sharing programs in the north, and how this will affect financing of both the state and Daesh. Essentially, how do you anticipate the drop in oil prices to affect political and regional actors? Hi, um, I'm Vincent. I'm a LSC student here. Um, so my question is, is it too simplistic to say that groups like Daesh and future groups like Daesh would not exist if the state and the political system is rebuilt. Because just looking at the sheer barbarity of ISIS and the level of evil atrocities they can commit, I just don't feel like that, I, I just don't feel that the, a political solution is enough to combat the evil that they're able to perpetrate. I'm just wondering, um, do you think uh, Daesh is sustainable as a terrorist organization? As in, do you think its model will enable it to achieve its goals? Or on the other hand, or on the other side of the spectrum, uh, maybe you think that it's doomed to failure? Okay, thanks. As an LSE student, you know the school motto, which I think the last time I looked at it at least, I should have it tattooed on my chest, but I haven't, is to understand the causes of things. So what I struggle to do is understand what gave rise to Daesh. Now, as you know, Daesh was, was created out of the Iraqi civil war in 2006, was an Iraqi phenomenon, or a phenomenon that has its origins in Iraq, and then it launched this hostile takeover into the Syrian jihad, which is still ongoing, and we'll see how that sustains. Now, undoubtedly, they have committed abominations and atrocities, horrors that shock the world and are designed to shock the world. Um, but what I want to know, and I think if we're trying to find a solution to that organization, is where they came from. And I think it's intriguing that the core amount of fighters, certainly uh, in Iraq, from 2007, the core amount of Daesh fighters was reduced to the low hundreds, a tiny amount under the full 
uh, a force of American weapons, the Anbar Awakening, all these different things unfolding. And then after 2011, 2012, what I was trying to indicate in the talk is it rapidly expanded. Why? I don't think it's to do with their evil atrocities. I don't think it's to do with the undoubted horror they've leashed, unleashed. What makes a small section, a small demographic of a population susceptible to joining a force like that? That's the question that interests me more, and that's the question I was trying to tease out at the end of the lecture. And of course, that goes to the next question. If you answer that question, are they defeatable? The answer, quite simply, is I don't think they're defeatable militarily. That clearly the United States, in the, during the surge, through everything that they had, the amount of money, effort, time invested in that fight took them down to low numbers. And then the Americans left and they came back up. So my point, and that's my point to both these questions, is if there is a solution, it's a political solution. It's about linking ordinary Iraqis, giving them back a sense of citizenship, linking to the, the, their state through institutions that provide electricity and clean running water, encouraging them to mobilize, as a large majority of them did in the 2010 elections, go to the ballot box and invest their hope in politicians that they can pull out of the ballot box and do down and send back home if they don't do anything five years later. Now, saying that, I'm listening to myself and think, my God, that sounds desperately naive in a country like Iraq, but it gets back to that question now, says, why not? Billions of dollars have been invested, squandered in Iraq since 2003. Billions of Iraqi dollars, oil money, squandered in corruption, squandered by the American occupation. Uh, now it's up to Iraq, as, sadly, as the oil price drops, has dropped to, uh, through the floor, to try and reconstruct their state once again. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to, and I don't think it's impossible. It's going to take a long time, and it needs a group of Iraqis, both technocrats and politicians, who are not tainted by the corruption that swept over the country after 2003. They exist. They're still there. They're still working. They're still um, uh, risking their lives going to work every day in Baghdad government ministries uh, spread across the country. All we're suggesting, what I'm suggesting, is they're empowered by a meaningful democratic mobilization, uh, by political forces that make manifesto demands around electricity, the end of corruption, the delivery of clean running water. This sitting here, or indeed traveling through Iraq, talking to ordinary Iraqis, doesn't strike me as ludicrous. It strikes me as difficult and a long-term project, but certainly not ludicrous. Right, we have about seven minutes left. Let's see how many questions we can fit into that. Uh, that gentleman, and we have so, so many questions upstairs, so let's take uh, your question as well. Yeah, put the jacket. And one person from here. Yeah, and then I'll come to you if you have time, okay? So, here, uh, with the laptop. Hello. Also my student. <laughs> so, hello, um, my name is Cam, uh, I'm a civil servant. Um, I might be missing a point here. We, we know that Daesh dominate the, you know, the airwaves and the, 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 the region, but where does that leave Al-Qaeda? I mean, are the, are the two groups distinct? Are they the same? 
why have they not colluded to bring down the government? It's just something that I'm, I'm interested in. Thank you. Hi, um, I'm Elisa, oh, a first-year student at LSE. Um, retired Army General David Petraeus directly attributes the rise of ISIS to a military void from, um, a, to a void created by U.S. military forces. Do you think that claim has um, any merit? Okay. Um, I'll keep it brief. Do you envisage in the next year or two that Iraqi Kurdistan will unilaterally declare independence, given how much of this uh, debate has focused on the weakness of the Iraqi state? Would it not be too good of an opportunity to miss? Great, thank you. Yeah, okay, great. Um, Al-Qaeda and Daesh, how do we understand them and what is their relationship and what's left of Al-Qaeda, I think? I would you were theorizing or you're describing generally analytically, I would say that Daesh evolved from Al-Qaeda. I think if you look at its, its ideology, it's, 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 it's harsh, it's much, much more sectarian, much more narrow, much more focused, much more extreme than even Al-Qaeda. And its jurisprudence, its interaction uh, with Islam, I think is much thinner. It's, it, it, it's a much less developed ideological force that has much less interaction with actually the tenets of Islam, I would argue. Um, but it's been incredibly successful. Now, you could say there's nothing succeeds like success. It's dri been driven uh, forward by its momentum in Iraq by exploiting uh, the, the civil war in Syria. But then how do you explain it coming, it, it, it globalizing that franchise? That's beyond simply the alumni of the struggle in Syria and Iraq. There's something else going on that people are recognizing this new evolution of radical Islamism, recognizing its harshness, its, its, um, but also its, its, on, on certain levels, its appeal to a small demographic. So I think Al-Qaeda, um, Daesh has moved beyond Iraq. And it, it, it's marketed its own understanding beyond that. I think that is, uh, that's both important and worrying. And it's left certain Al-Qaeda franchises, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, for example, in, in Yemen, still with capacity. The, the, the fight hasn't been lost. But you see um, in Syria, in the Civil War in Syria, for example, them clearly competing and refusing to merge and fighting each other. So these two different distinct franchises have problems with each other um, and haven't, uh, whoever the questioner is, haven't banded together uh, uh, because of those questions. On, uh, I just disagree with that. On, uh, it's easy to do with David Petraeus, the military void. Um, and I disagree for reasons I think I, I tried to explain in my lecture, that if you look at what the surge did, or indeed what the surge allegedly Mark II in Afghanistan did and didn't do, I think the Americans, American military, with all its technology, its capacity, its, its secret intelligence, it's very good at killing people, very good at identifying and killing people. What it's very bad at doing, this is the civilian surge, never arrives at rebuilding things, and it's very bad at kind of implementing a political strategy to make its military gain sustainable. So I don't, there is a myth uh, that Obama lost Iraq. Who lost Iraq? Oh, Obama did. Firstly, uh, 
it's a polite word. That is an unsustainable argument uh, because uh, the timetable upon which the American troops withdrew was one negotiated by George Bush at the end of his presidency. Two, there was never, and this is the second part of the myth, there was nearly, never any commitment by the vast majority of Iraq's politicians to overturn the status of forces agreement and get a new status of forces. It as soon as Nouri al-Maliki said it wouldn't go through parliament, it had to go through parliament, it wasn't going to happen. And thirdly, as I said, it, is, it, it, it isn't at base a military problem. That they killed uh, the pre-runner of Daesh's fighters right down to the low hundreds, and, and yet they increased, so I don't think it's that. KRG independence, well, fascinating. Masoud Barzani seems committed to it, keep popping up and saying, we'll soon have a referendum, as he did uh, after the fall of Mosul, actually, before, rather annoyingly, Daesh turned its forces on Erbil to prove that the Peshmerga weren't quite the fighting force it was thought. I, indeed, I've, I've looked at the, the evolution of uh, Kurdish regional government's oil policy. I've looked at that pipeline to Turkey, and I've asked the same question as you. Why on earth not? And I think there were, th there were a few questions. Firstly, with the low price of oil, the Kurdish regional government's finances are in an absolute and utterly dreadful state. It hasn't paid its own Peshmerga fighters, those you think would be at the front of the queue for government wages, for five months. When it tried to raise a, a bond, uh, an issue bond, because it wasn't the state, and also because it has und undoubtedly its own problems with internal corruption, the price of that bond wasn't seen to be sustainable. And so the Kurdish regional government is at the moment in an intense discussion about how to reform its own economy, and it hasn't come up with any sustainable answers to that question yet. So against that background, financially, I think it, it, it's, it's in, the, in a problem. And of course, the ongoing argument it has with Baghdad about a fair and equitable distribution of oil wealth is an ongoing argument. You think with Hyderabadi, with Adil Abdul Mahdi as oil minister, one of the, pro, the most pro-Kurdish Shia politicians, they could have done a deal, and they yet to do that. So I think if the price of oil rises, uh, Kurdistan could then float towards independence. But then there's the other issue, which is the commitment or not of the regional powers, which has been the long-running issue. Turkey's um, relationship with the bill has been fascinating. There's been a the pipeline is indicative of that. There's been a long flirtation with Kurdish regional government independence from Iraq as a way of beating Nuri al-Maliki as much as anything down in Baghdad. But of course, Turkey has realized its own Kurdish uh, problem with the PKK hasn't gone away. And I wonder if that actually balances up the ramifications of pushing so heavily for Kurdish regional independence. I don't know if futurology is always a dangerous thing, but I think at the moment, regional and most importantly, oil economics make that very, very difficult. Okay, thank you, Toby. So we came to the end of our time. Apologies to those if they, you had any more questions. Uh, it's half past, so thank you very thank much, you very Toby. Much. And let's show our appreciation to you. Thank you.